Good morning, gentlemen. Whoever prayed for the torrential rain not to hit us again this morning, I appreciate that. It was nice to come in nice and dry. Hey, turn, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse 11. Let me just remind you, we've, we've said we're going to study First and Second Samuel, which is really about, uh, in one sense, humanly, it's about the life of Samuel. And then we get the life of Saul, and then we get King and Saul together, and then Second Samuel, we get the life of David. But ultimately, we've seen it's really about God. He's the hero of the book. And uh, we've seen that it's about God ruling over all the nations, and particularly ruling over His people. So God is king. And then we've seen that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are going to teach us that the human kings are merely God's servants on behalf of His people. And when they rule in the fear of God, and they rule to the advantage of God's people, God blesses them and favors them. And when they don't, God judges them and often removes them. So God is king. We've also uh, seen that His word rules. The real heroes, I would suggest, especially in First and Second Kings, and by the way, remember in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, our first, second, third, and fourth book of the kingdoms. So in the book of the kingdoms, the real hero is the prophet. It's always the person who brings the word of God. Because all the kings, just like all of us, are ruled by the word of God. We're measured by the word of God. If you want to know how you're doing, you can look at your business bottom line, or you can look at many standards that we use for your success in life. But the way the Lord measures your success is your conformity to the Word of God. So the one who bears the Word of God is always the most important character uh, in the book of the kingdoms. It's not the ones with the power who are the kings. Some of the kings who in secular history had enormous influence will only get eight or nine verses in First or Second Kings. But the prophets uh, in First and Second Kings, they have chapters and chapters written about them like Elijah and Elisha. So as men who hear the Word of God and bear the Word of God to the places where we serve, we're the most important people in society. That's God's view. It's not the kings and the powerful people and the generals and the, and the presidents. It's those who bear the Word of God. But we're going to see an instance today of how important it is to be one who obeys the Word of God and then bears the Word of God, and we'll see how fruitful the life is of one who does that. Well, let's, let's read it through. We've got a chapter and a half to look at. And uh, it's filled with all kinds of conflict. And you'll notice as we're reading through that we'll go back and forth between Eli and his sons and the son of Hannah and Elkanah, Samuel. And we'll go back and forth and what the author of 1 Samuel is showing us is a contrast between those who rule like Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, and one who lives like Samuel. And this great contrast is going to point out for us our lessons for the day. Let's look in it, beginning with verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants, servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. 
Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. I think we'll stop right there, and let's look at what we've got. Now, to begin with, let's notice that in uh, these verses, 11 through 21, the overarching theme is that when church leaders are corrupt, God is at work. This is the reason that we have the sons of Eli and Samuel together. We're seeing the corrupt line of Eli, but we're seeing that God is raising up the pious line of, of Samuel. And God is at work when evil is in place. You know, it's a, it's a great tragedy when you pick up the paper and you look at some things that are going on in our nation. The confusion in sexual ethics, the confusion in uh, economic ethics in Wall Street and right here on Main Street. Uh, you see all kinds of immorality that's in the newspaper and it can be very discouraging. But what's most discouraging is when you see evil within the church, corruption within church leaders. And if you really want to get God's judgment, get His attention, you can let those of you who are in church leadership uh, become corrupt. And that gets His attention. Nothing is more offensive to Him than that. And that's exactly what we have here is major corruption in the church. And I want us to take a look at it and let's see what God does about it. Uh, first of all, in verses 12 through 17, we're going to see that corrupt leaders treat God's worship with contempt. That's the problem. It begins with their worship. They treat it with contempt. And you can see in verse 12 uh, that these, these guys, these sons of Eli, are called worthless men. Or literally in Hebrew, it's these sons of Eli are sons of Belial. Sons of the devil. They're worthless men. They do not know the Lord. So if, if our sons, no matter who we are in leadership, if our sons don't know the Lord, they're going to become sons of Belial. Second, and you'll notice then that their behavior emanates right from their character. The most important thing about developing other people, especially your children, is to develop their character. Every one of us who has children has to be a pastor. Not an ordained pastor in the church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being a shepherd of your child's heart. The most important thing that you should be concerned about in the development of your child is obviously their heart. And therefore you have to learn how to ask pastoral questions, to find out what's going on in their thinking. When they misbehave, your chief concern is not the behavior. Your chief concern is to be the character behind the behavior and to ask character questions. Tell me what was on your mind when you did that. Not, what was on your mind? But what was on your mind? What were you thinking? Why did you do that? Let's look at that. And you want to work with your child to look at their motives and then see if the reality of Jesus Christ ever crossed their mind. And you could ask them the question, in view of the fact that God loves you and He sent His Son to die for you, how do you think we should be reacting in that kind of situation that you're in? So you want to pastor the child's heart because all of their behavior for all the rest of their lives, it's going to come out of their character. And their character is developed within their heart. That's the problem. That's where the writer of 1 Samuel begins. These were guys who were sons of Belial. They did not know the Lord. They did not have believing character. And therefore, you shouldn't expect anything but unbelieving behavior. Now, notice secondly, in verses 13 through 15, what they do. They violate the Word of God. Why do I say that? Well, this is a little bit remote. This is not something that would be on the top of our minds here, but uh, this is what we, what we have in verses 13 through 15 is an explicit violation of what God had said to the priests that they were to do. In Leviticus chapter 7, God explains very carefully that there are portions of the sacrifice that are brought forward that are the priests. In other words, uh, it's true today. When you tithe into your church, a certain portion of it goes to pay people like me pastors. Well, it was true in the religious worship of Israel. When you bring your offerings to the Lord, some of those offerings go to the poor. Some of those offerings you eat yourself, just like we're doing this morning in a fellowship breakfast. And some of those offerings go for the Levites and the priests. In Leviticus 7, God explained that here's what you get. I don't know why this is, but when the animals brought forward, you get the breast and you get the right thigh. Go figure. I don't know. But look what these guys were doing. They were saying, okay, I'm going to take this little fork. I'm going to stick it in the cauldron. Whatever comes up is mine. It's kind of like, you know, the, uh, the offering. When it comes forward, you heard the story about the pastor who took the offering. And he said, I'm going to throw the offering up in the air. And everything that stays up there is the Lord's. And the rest is mine. 
Yeah. So uh, you have corrupt people who have these strange ways of thinking. They, they, they think they're entitled, you know, because they're in leadership, just to take whatever they want to take. And we have instances even in churches where people, pastors and, and financial leaders within the church are embezzling in the church. Can you imagine such a thing? That's exactly what these guys were doing. They were taking a portion that didn't belong to them. There was an offering to the Lord. They obviously did not know the Lord. They were sons of Belial. Now, the second way in which they were violating the law of God is that it, uh, the, uh, Moses explains clearly in Leviticus chapter 7 and some other places that the fat is to be burned to the Lord as a sacrifice. Now, we read later that Eli was a really fat man, and it makes you wonder. He was eating fat that his sons were bringing in. They weren't supposed to be eating in the first place. And so the sons were taking meat before it was boiled, taking it raw, and they were taking the fat. And they weren't supposed to do that. That was to be burned to the Lord as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. So the whole purpose of the sacrifice was being lost because these guys were embezzling and taking what belonged only to the Lord. It's an amazing, uh, just in-your-face violation of the law of God. Now, guys, you can look through the Old Testament or the New, but especially the Old Testament, and you'll see that when God gives commandments to the priests, they must be followed. Do you remember when the priests, the sons of Aaron, came in with false fire? They were simply lighting the fire on the altar in the uh, holy place in the wrong way. And they got consumed by the fire. Do you remember when Uzzah, and we'll take this story in 2 Samuel 6 a little later this year, when Uzzah, a priest, in order to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling off its cart, he stuck out his hand to try to steady it. And he was struck dead. Why? Nobody's supposed to touch the ark. And, he, but, and you might say, well, Uzzah just wanted to keep the ark from falling into the mud. Well, here was Uzzah's problem. He didn't realize there was more filth in his little finger than there was in the mud on the ground. And he stuck his, his filthy hand up there to hold the ark. And God struck him dead. You say, wow. Uzzah should have known better. He was a priest, and all these rules are clearly in the Pentateuch. So when you have violations by the priest, they are just intentionally, high-handedly disobeying the worship of God. And the worship of God is the most important thing that we do. So if any of us are in leadership, leading people in prayer, whether in our homes or in the church, leading in worship, remember God has certain ways and things that He wants done. And we're not to just dream up our own ideas. That's what these guys were doing. It was very corrupt. It was high-handed. It was right in God's face. They were violating His Word. Notice thirdly, they not only uh, had bad character, violating the Word of God, but they bullied faithful people. Because some of the people said to them, uh, let's burn the fat first, and then you can take as much as you wish. And look what these boys said. No, you must give it now, and if not, we'll take it by force. They were obviously strong men. They could manhandle people, and they just bullied people. This is real wickedness. And then fourthly, what they were doing greatly offended God. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord was offended. We'll see that they, that didn't seem to bother them very much, at least at the moment. So corrupt leaders typically... Treat God's worship with contempt. You see the same thing in Malachi 1 when God, the first issue He takes up with them uh, after they return from exile is their worship. And the problem with their worship, they were bringing blemished lambs. And God says, you hold my altar in contempt. So when we give Him less than what He demands, we are holding His worship in contempt. And here's what He says about it. I'd this is in Malachi chapter 1. I'd rather somebody shut the doors and lock them. I'd rather not have any worship than to have the kind of worship that you're offering. So let's just remember that when we go to worship and we're in the presence of the Lord, what we do is extremely important. And He's the main audience, not anybody else around us. So keep your eyes focused on the Lord and worship Him, not with contempt, but with a desire to honor Him. Now let's look at verses 18 through 21. And we'll notice that God raises up and blesses new worshiping leaders. So if you want to know what does God do about this, well, notice He's, he's raising up a new kind of leader. And that's exactly what He does. 
Don't worry about the church of Jesus Christ. It gets oppressed and afflicted, sometimes persecuted, sometimes martyred around the world. Don't worry on the macroscopic level about the survival of the church. Uh, God will keep the church alive and He'll keep it vital. He is in charge. And that's what this is all about. Even with this massive corruption, you have this little boy who is not corrupted by this environment. Just think about it. You've got a three-year-old kid who's put into the hands of Eli, and Eli's sons are corrupt. No telling what they said and did to Samuel during those years. But Samuel remained faithful. God is able to keep us. I think of my own uh, great-grandmother who was so ill she was taken out of her family and institutionalized when, she, when my grandfather was six years of age. My great-grandfather was not a Christian, but my great-grandmother had so trained him by the time he was six that when he grew up, he was, he was really a Christian leader in his church. And I've often thought, how in the world did that happen? She was taken out of the home when he was only six. That's about all it takes, gentlemen. If you're training those little ones in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if God gets a hold of their hearts, it's amazing what they can sustain, what they can endure when they have the Lord with them. That's exactly what Samuel experienced here. Now notice uh, that first of all in verses 18 and 19, the godly take worship seriously. That's the first thing you notice about them. They take the worship of God seriously. Their personal worship, their family worship, their corporate worship. Unlike the sons of Belial, And you'll see this with Samuel and his parents. He wore the linen ephod like a priest should wear. And Samuel did come from a priestly home just as Eli did. And his mother made this little robe for him. They all took it very seriously. And they continued to go to the yearly sacrifice at Shiloh. So there was a worship rhythm and there's a worship seriousness, even about what he wore, that it would be special. I just say to you as you take your family to church, It doesn't matter so much what you wear. Here's what matters. Is that in your mind, that set apart is the most important moment in the week of the life of your family. And they can pick it up from you. On Saturday night, they should pick up from you that you're very excited about what's going to happen the next morning. And you go to bed early on Saturday night because it's more important than a school night. It's a Sunday school and church night. And so you want your kids to be refreshed and ready to worship the Lord in the morning. And they have this sense of excitement. And you're praying for the worship of God in your church and the church around the world on Saturday night with your family. That's the kind of focus that families need to have on the worship of God. It's exactly what Samuel was dealing with here. And how God, notice how God used it. Now in verses 20 and 21a, notice that the godly look to God for his blessing. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. I want us to camp out here for just a minute. The godly love to worship the Lord. They cultivate that in their lives. They learn how to worship. They learn the disciplines of worship. Uh, We all don't have a voice like Robert Sutton, okay? Uh, Granted, some of us can't uh, hold pitch at all. Well, if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, you can lower the volume just a little bit, you know, not to scandalize everybody around you. But there's got to be zeal, you know, singing to the Lord's praise. We come to the Lord with gifts. We don't come empty-handed. We don't come without offerings to the Lord. Come with your hands full, with your heart full, and your mouth ready to sing to the Lord. We come refreshed. We come prepared. We come with a thought. We come with prayers. We come with reasons to praise Him. And so we we have worshiping hearts. And then notice here what we're studying is that when we come to the Lord, we're expecting Him to bless us. So anytime we go to the Lord in prayer or to this Bible study or to worship on Sunday, we're expecting to receive His favor and blessing. We're looking for what He will pour out upon us. We're waiting for Him. We come with our gifts to worship Him, but we're also coming with expectant hearts. And notice, if we go back to chapter 1, remember where poor old Hannah was. She was married to Elkanah. She was barren, had no children. And the second wife, which Elkanah obviously took on because his wife was barren, he loved her. But she was barren, and they they needed to have descendants. So he marries the second woman, Penina. And she's a bad apple. 
She makes fun of Hannah continually because, oh, too bad you can't have kids. Well, you can, you can enjoy mine. You know, everybody doesn't have kids. Some people are blessed by the Lord and some not. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not up to me. I mean, this is the kind of character Penina was. And Hannah had to put up with that. She was deeply grieved. She thought probably over and over again the Lord had completely abandoned her. Now, would you please notice just this little picture of God's sovereignty that we can see? We can't always see what God's doing in our sufferings. But right here we get a little picture. Look what he was doing. He was, he was keeping Hannah barren so that she would deeply long for her little boy, so much so that she would promise and vow to the Lord that after he was weaned, she would hand him over to be a priest in Shiloh uh, in, at the tabernacle under Eli. Now I'm telling you what, if she hadn't been barren and she just had her first baby, she never would have given him over to be Eli's servant. She never would have done that. Look what God was doing. He keeps her barren, gives her a thorn in her flesh with Penina until she just desperately cries out to the Lord and pledges her son and gives him over to be the new priest after God destroys the house of Eli. Samuel will be the priest and the judge and the prophet in Israel. Wow, look at his providence. But you're sitting there thinking, yeah, well, great, great for us, great for God, but poor Hannah loses her son. She has to hand him over at three years of age. But look at the text. She gets five more kids. Here's what we're being shown, that our sufferings are purposeful. If we are worshipers of God, if we've devoted our lives to His purposes, you can trust Him that He's working through the good times. He's also working through the bad times in ways that you cannot yet see. And most of the ways in which He's working, you're not going to see in your lifetime. That's what heaven is going to be about in some ways, is to look at the grandeur of God's providence through all of history and see the fabric the handiwork of God through all of history to see what He was doing, to glorify Himself through the redemption of His people. What a story we have yet to hear. We don't know the half of it now. But when we get little pieces like this, we have to remember that God is working through your difficult times for His glory and for the redemption of His whole church. That's the way He works. Some of you know the name William, William Cooper, spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, pronounced Cooper. William Cooper was a hymn writer, and as many uh, artists and musicians are, sometimes they're more melancholy by personality. William Cooper was one of those melancholies. In fact, he would have whole seasons of depression. In fact, when he got really deeply depressed, he became tempted to commit suicide. On one winter night in London, Cooper was in his flat. He was very depressed, and he decided he was just going to end it all. So he calls for a cabbie, which would be a horse-drawn carriage, and asks to be taken to London Bridge. And he's simply going to get out of the, of the carriage and hop off the bridge and end it all. It was a very foggy night in London. If you've been in London for any period of time, you know when it's foggy in London, it's really foggy in London. You can hardly see your hand in front of your face. It was so bad that even this very experienced cabbie got lost. <laughs> that never happens. But this cabbie got lost in the midst of all the fog and instead of going to London Bridge, he goes a real circuitous route and comes right back to the flat where William Cooper started out. And Cooper just said, oh, just forget it. I can't even kill myself. And he gets out of the, out of the cabbie, he goes up to his flat and then he realizes what the Lord has done, how the Lord has spared him. And he wrote that famous hymn, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Now there's a man who understood what God was doing behind the scenes in our worst moments. That God is at work. And that's exactly what he's saying here. God is at work. Let Him do His work. And if it costs you your pain and suffering, if it costs you your very life, be assured of this, that in the end you'll be blessed at least fivefold, which is what Hannah was blessed. Five times over. Five new children. And you see it at the end of Job. After all the sufferings of Job, he ends up with twice as many children and twice as much wealth. God is a good God. And He will be no one's debtor.
So we see here that he uh, gives blessing to the godly as they look to him. Notice thirdly in 21b, the godly flourish. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord, or just literally he grew with the Lord. He was with the Lord. And if you're with the Lord, you're going to grow. You don't have to go to Harvard to grow. Here's what you have to do to grow. Be with the Lord. Be in His presence. Be devoted to Him. He will grow you up and develop you and mature you. Now let's pick up our Bibles again and look at verse 22. And we'll read to the beginning of chapter 3. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Wow. Let's look back at our notes, and we'll see then that corrupt leaders not only... Uh, corrupt the worship of God, but they ignore God's law. If we don't know the Lord, if we've turned our back on Him, we will hold in contempt His worship. We'll see it as a waste of our time and useless exercise. We'll take advantage of every angle on it. We'll also look at His ethical principles and we'll despise those as well. That's what happens. We go from bad to worse. And look at what they were doing. They were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. How outrageous. In pagan worship, part of the worship was to get a prostitute in the temple and have sex with her and to symbolize the relationship between Baal and Ashtaroth because we want Baal and Ashtaroth to get it on so that there will be fertility in the land. So if Baal and Ashtaroth are having sex among the gods and goddesses, then uh, there will be rain and the land will bear fruit. That's pagan theology. But when God's people came into Canaan, He says, I want you to get rid of that worship because it reflects the practices in that worship reflect the theology, the view of God that these people have. They see God as being fickle and they try to manipulate God and that's the reason you go in and your sacrament for the day is not bread and wine. The sacrament is to have sex with a prostitute so that you can get Baal and Ashtaroth to do the same thing. It's, it's 
worship that's reflective of uh, uh, trust or lack of trust in a fickle, manipulative God or set of gods. But your God is faithful. Therefore, just as God makes covenant with His people and is faithful to them and provides for them, I want you to live in faithful covenant marriage. And that's the reason that we have covenantal marriages, is to display the covenant relationship between God and His people. And here, Hophni and Phinehas are just obliterating the whole idea of Christian worship, that we're faithful in our sexual lives to demonstrate our theology, that God is faithful to us. The husband plays the role of of God and the wife plays the role of his people. And so we live it out before the angels to celebrate God's faithfulness to us. And these guys are completely obliterating everything. When sexual immorality goes, the theology is already gone. So gentlemen, let me say to you, in churches where there is no standard for sexual morality or where the biblical standard is being violated, the view of God is already gone. There's obviously no understanding of the very nature of sex and its purpose. It is to demonstrate the way God made us and the covenant in which He keeps us. So if you violate a marriage between a man and a woman faithfully, a monogamous marriage, you obviously are violating the very symbol itself directing us to look at God as the faithful groom of His people. So whenever you see this, a corrupt church with corrupt sexual practices, they have a corrupt theology and no worship anymore. And God is saying, I wish you'd close the door. It's that simple. You get it right here clearly in 1 Samuel. So they do outrageous things. Notice secondly, they scandalize the people. Eli says, why are you doing this? And like, yeah, and there's some good things that Eli does. And here's, here's one good thing. He's pleading with his own sons. Why are you all doing this? Don't you realize everybody knows you're doing this. You're scandalizing everybody. Now, it would be nice if Eli had used an argument a little bit earlier in his career. It's it's important that our corruption is known by other people and it scandalizes them. That's an important point, but it's not the most important point. The most important point is the one we just discussed. It's offensive to God Himself and it obliterates the image of God in man and it obliterates the view of the covenant between God and His people. It would have been nice if Eli had taken up that argument about 20 years before this. But it's not bad that he's saying to them now, why are you all doing this? Don't you realize everybody knows that it's ruining the church and everybody can look at the church and say, it's a bunch of hypocrites. Starting with the the leaders in the church. They're saying one thing and they're doing another. And there's nothing that hurts me more than to have someone say, oh yeah, I know one of your officers. He's the one in the club that every time he misses a putt, you get a string of cursing and foul language. Or, yeah, I know, I know that officer in your church. He's the one who takes advantage of people and pays them the lowest salary he can possibly pay them. Oh, yeah, I know that guy in your church. I think he's one of your officers. And he's the one who calls people by name and makes racial slurs against people. Nothing will obliterate the reputation of the church and of God's name among us than when leaders go corrupt in their ethical morality. And here this is happening. Notice thirdly, the real problem is they do not fear God. And Eli tells them, if somebody sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if you you do a high-handed sin against the Lord, who's going to intercede for you? And in Leviticus chapter 4, when it comes to the sacrifices that are offered for God's people, there are sacrifices for unintentional sins. But when there's an intentional sin against the Lord, who's, who's to... Avoid his judgments. That's what Eli is saying to them. And they don't care. They don't fear him. They're fools, as the psalmist would say. And then fourthly, notice in verse 25b, they do not accept correction. And you can always feel where corruption is. When you approach it, there's no humility. Nobody's asking, tell me more about that. How can I do better? It's all defense of myself. It's all blame shifting. It's all, I don't give a flying rip. And here you have the same thing. They would not listen to the voice of their father. And why wouldn't they? Here's why they didn't. For they they knew it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God had already judged them and they knew it. And so under His judgment, knowing they're not forgiven, they just don't give a rip. Now here's the message of the gospel. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit. Nobody knows exactly what that one is. 
But if we turn to the Lord and confess our sins, all of our sins are forgiven. We have every reason to obey Him because He's forgiven all of our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, notice in verse 26, D, God raises up and blesses ethical leaders. Here we have it again. In the midst of all this corruption, here's Samuel. And guys, I want to say to you, it doesn't matter what church you're in or how corrupt it is or what, how corrupt your nation is. The, the point for you is not how corrupt is your environment. The point for you is not how is America doing. The point for you is how are you doing. And God in His providence often will put His faithful people in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And here's this little boy where his mentor, Eli, is not following the Lord as he should, as we'll see in a moment, and certainly his sons are not. And Eli's calling in life is to be faithful where he is. And that's your calling in life, and mine too. So there's no excuse for any of us. We can't say, boy, the environment, boy, politics are tough. You expect a politician to be a Christian? Yes, I do. Boy, business is tough. You just can't make a profit out there unless you really know how to play the game and be shrewd. And You know, every once in a while, bend the rules. No, not for you. So here's, here's the picture that God raises up and blesses ethical leaders. Look at this now. Young man Samuel. The young man continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And of course you recognize this is exactly what was said of Jesus when he was 12 years old. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Those of you involved in PDS, that's, that's the PDS motto, isn't it? That's what we're shooting for with these boys, that they would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Alec Thompson, I think I remember the conversation in the board when we, we chose that motto, and I think you were the one who suggested it. And it's a great one. And here, Jesus was described in the same words that Samuel was described in here. No matter how much evil is around you, no matter whether the people around you are senior to you, more powerful than you, older than you, you walk with the Lord. And He brings His favor to rest upon you. And you will grow in stature and in favor with God and in favor with other people. And we'll see it in the life of Samuel for sure. Now let's pick up with verse 27 and read to the end of our uh, text for the day. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out out of all the tribes of Israel uh, to go up to the altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity. Uh, You know what? We read this, didn't we? Look at chapter 3. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. I couldn't remember if it was from my reading it again this morning early or with you. (laughs) Eli was an old man. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. 
And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken against his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pick up with verse 27, Roman numeral 2. When church leaders are corrupt, God judges them. When church leaders are corrupt, God judges them. Notice that God holds leaders accountable, verses 27 through 29. And notice in 27a, He starts at the top. He starts with Eli. He doesn't start with Hophni and Phinehas. He doesn't even speak to Hophni and Phinehas. He speaks to Eli and holds him accountable for these boys. Now, Eli had obviously taught his boys doctrinally. He had obviously warned them ethically, but Eli had not disciplined them practically. You can say all you want in your church or in your family or in your business, but when your principles are challenged and when your standards are violated and you do nothing, that's what you're teaching, nothing. Your teaching doesn't matter. If I preach from the pulpit that we should all sleep with our own wives and our own wives only, and then somebody here decides to do differently, and our elders have nothing to say about it, then my preaching is as nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just words. Same thing in your household, gentlemen. You can live a life yourself. You can communicate it doctrinally to your children. But if you do not engage with them and live life with them, and not only warn them, but discipline them, and move them on the path they're supposed to go, it doesn't make any difference. It's empty. It's just a rattle in the house. You're teaching. So this is what's happening to Eli. God starts with him and says to him, first of all, uh, number 2, verses 27b and 28, he says, let's remember your privileges. You're a son of Aaron. Do you remember that when Moses called the people out of Egypt, His brother became the one through whom I spoke. His brother became the one that would be offering the sacrifices. He became the priest in Israel, and you're his child. You had these tremendous privileges. And so there's no reason that you should have allowed these things to go on in your house. And number three, he identifies our sin. He says that when you, your sons, were sticking their fork in the cauldron and pulling out whatever they wanted to, including the fat, that was to be burned as a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord, you scorned my sacrifices. You scorned my worship. So gentlemen, when your children, your elementary age children, are allowed to go wherever they want to go, not worshiping the Lord, not tending to His Word, you're scorning the Word of God and the worship of God. Because you're not disciplining your own house. That's what's being said here. You scorned my sacrifices, Eli. And not only that, look at how He... He puts it here, and this is really sharp. He says, you honored your sons above me. I see it happening so often with fathers. The kids will say to them, oh, you're the meanest father in the whole world. And you say, oh, I don't want to be the meanest father in the whole world. So yeah, go ahead and stay at the party till 1 o'clock in the morning and, and not worry about it. You just honored your son above honoring the Lord. Your number one concern with your son and your daughter is that they honor the Lord that they glorify Him. That's your number one concern. And you must make that and keep that as your number one concern. Come hell or high water, God's glory and the purity of His name on your family and on your life, that's number one. And sometimes it means you become very unpopular with your own young children. And Eli wanted to be popular. He was a pastor. 
He wanted people to like him. And he ended up honoring people more than he honored the Lord. Then look in verses 30 through 36 and you see that God's judgment begins in God's house. And 1 Peter 4 teaches that judgment will begin in the house of God. And just notice quickly here, we'll race through these. Number one, God breaks the legacy. He says, Eli, your house is the one in charge of the, t- of the tabernacle. That's going to end. And in fact it does. We'll come to the story later when all the priests at Nob are wiped out by Saul. Well, that was because of Saul's wickedness, but it was also because of God's judgment against the house of Eli. And all of them are wiped out except Abiathar. He's the only one that escapes. And he goes and tells David about it and all the rest. We'll get to that story later. What do you read in 1 Kings chapter 2? That when Solomon becomes king, he looks at Abiathar and he says, your time is over and Zadok is the new priest. And it says there to fulfill the judgment against Eli and his house. Don't think that God forgets his judgments. So the whole house of Eli is under judgment. The legacy is over. And gentlemen, as a leader in your own household or the leader in a church, you can take a really good church and you can destroy the legacy of it in one generation. And then notice number two, he brings misery and death. He says it's going to be all over. Hophni and Phinehas shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. But then notice verses 35 through 36, he raises up others. And he predicts Zadok, the priest, who will serve before the anointed David and Solomon. So the prediction is there. We don't always get these kinds of predictions, but here we do as a judgment against Eli. Now, C, notice that God's judgments are announced by God's servants. And this is the whole calling of young Samuel, that God is going to announce His judgment through His prophet. And he does this with Samuel. He calls him for this very purpose. And the word in Hebrew, kara, which means to call, is found 11 times in verses 4 through 10. God is calling Samuel. He's calling you. He's calling me to hear his word and to be bearers of his word to those around us. That's the calling. You, you have an occupation. but you only, you, There are many occupations in this room, but there's only one vocation from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. There's only one calling. That's to follow the Lord Jesus, to hear His word, and to bear His word to the world. This is what Samuel's getting. Notice number three, well, number two, God's word calls us to greater service, and that's what Samuel's being called to. He's now been trained. He doesn't know the Lord yet intimately. He's going to know Him and know His voice. And that's what happens to him now. He becomes now a son of the word of God. Now, number three, notice that God's word is a heavy burden. The Lord says to Samuel, all this judgment that's going to come upon Eli. And notice that Samuel, in verse 15, was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Well, of course. Afraid to tell him. Eli is the big cheese. And now I'm going to tell my boss that God's judgment is on him. I'm going to tell the the high priest that he's under God's judgment. Samuel stayed up all night. Worrying about that. Notice now once again, a good thing about Eli. He encourages Samuel to give him the word of God. Don't hold back anything. And when the word comes, notice another good thing about Eli. He says, let it be so. It's from the Lord. I accept his discipline. But Samuel has a burden. So do you. When you carry the word of the Lord, when you carry the gospel, there are many things about that gospel that are offensive to everything around you and everybody around you. The idea of sin and of God's judgment upon sinners. That's very unpopular. The idea that Jesus Christ is the only way to have your sin washed away, that's very unpopular. You're bearing a message that is dreadfully unpopular with other people. You you probably feel afraid to share it at times. So did Samuel. But he shared it. Because why? Number four, God's Word must be faithfully communicated. So even the bad news must be faithfully communicated. When the time is right, and you know that the Lord is in that moment, and someone is open to hearing the gospel, you must faithfully communicate the whole gospel message. Ralph Davis, who commented on First and Second Samuel, put it this way. He said, If a preacher never places you under the criticism of God's Word, never tells you your sin, but only smothers you with comfort, you must wonder if he is a phony. If his preaching contains only the judgment note, and seldom offers comfort and encouragement, 
One must ask if he actually cares for God's people. So we carry the Word of God in all of its comfort and encouragement and in all of its critique and judgment. And they're both there. Now lastly, number five, notice in verses 19 through 21 that God strengthens His messengers. When you commit your life to the Lord with all the corruption that's around you and you commit yourself to hear the Word of God, to take it in and then to communicate it, Look how God establishes you. Look what He does with Samuel. Not a word from his mouth falls to the ground. Everything that this boy says for the rest of his life has weight and gravity. And we'll find that the Lord is going to use Samuel to locate the king, David, and to give us rulership. And then He'll use Samuel to judge Saul and move him out of the way so that we can have David. It's amazing how God uses Samuel. Because this little boy simply kept his eye on the ball. He simply said, I'm going to give my life to the Word of God. And amidst a corrupting world, I'm going to be the Word of life to a corrupted world. And God strengthened him and established him as a prophet of the living God. And when we come to the New Testament, who are the prophets? Peter says when Pentecost comes, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel that my sons and daughters will prophesy. All the people in the kingdom of God, anyone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ becomes my prophet. You're the Samuels. I'm the Samuel. We're the prophets who are listening to the word of God, taking it to the world regardless of the cost to us, and who are now waiting to see what this ever-blessed God is going to pour out upon us who are in His favor. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the word of God and that You share it with people like us who are unworthy. We admit that by nature we're the sons of Belial. We've we've thought and, and done many of these things that have been excoriated in the Scriptures today. And yet, by the blood of Jesus Christ, you wash us, cleanse us, and you make us the little Samuels again who are listening to your Word. And we pray that we may faithfully communicate it to our own generation, that we may faithfully rear those who are in our own households, that we may faithfully lead your church, and that we may faithfully anticipate the great blessings that will fall upon us as your people. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.